Hi guys, welcome back to Into the Light, a different life story. My show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another great day. I've got another great guest with me. I've got Lieutenant Commander Teresa Carpenter with me. She's an active uh, duty military service woman and I am so, so excited to have her on because she shares some of the same stupid habits that drove me to be the, the kind of not bad doctor, let's say it like that. The, I'm good in my field and I'm, I'm good and sharp and switched on when I need to be. Yet, I've never really learned how to switch off for most of my career, which got me so deep into trouble in the past. So I've got uh, a woman who is on the other side of the world, yet who shares so many similarities here with me. Teresa, thank you so much for coming on to my show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's an honor to be here and to talk about a subject uh, that is so near and dear to my heart and has been so instrumental in making me the person that I am today. So can't wait to have this conversation. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's an honor to me. Now, the question is, you, you, you are now in a position that you can talk freely about mm -hmm your emotions and that is in 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 an institution uh the military where really emotions are not not highly up there <laughs> let's just share how you feel about uh whatever has occurred so that must be one of the the forefront of what we want to talk about but before we hit that before we go there i i just want to hear your background i mean it, it, were you born into a military family um was military always there no, um, I'm actually from Columbus, Ohio. It's a state in the Midwest portion of the United States. And in Columbus, Ohio, military service is not something that the kids grow up thinking they're going to do. Their impression of the military is thanking the troops. It's something that people do at, at bases that are, are not typically in, the, in, in Ohio. There is some Air Force uh, bases in Ohio, but not anywhere in Columbus. And so it was not something that any of my friends were doing, anybody my family had done. Although my father had served in the army when he was, he was drafted um, in, and he went to Panama. So he had, he had uh, four years that he served in the army, but he never talked about me joining the military. It was never on our, on our minds. It was a decision that was made after I had moved out of my parents' house when I was, uh, the summer I turned 17, and I lived on my own my senior year in high school. And I, after that, I struggled um, after high school with getting jobs. I was, you know, like so many young kids, I was, I was working just a series of, of dead-end kind of menial jobs. I bust tables, I was a hostess, I worked at a call center, and I was not fulfilled, but I did not know myself well enough to know what I wanted to do next. And I started racking up a bunch of debt. I started partying a lot, just making some poor decisions in my relationships. And I actually had a roommate who was in the Marine Corps Reserves and a guy that I was uh, seeing at the time also encouraged me 
um, to at least visit a recruiter and see what the options could be in order to help pay off my bills. And I thought I was just gonna go into the reserves and this would be a one weekend a month, two weekends in the summer or two weeks in the summer deal. I didn't even understand until I got into the processing part of joining that this was like a full-time thing that I was embarking on. I really went into it a little blind, um, but I thought, well, it will teach me a skill. Um, I'll have a steady income and I'll get out of my hometown and, and see different parts of the world. It, it really might, might help give me some direction. And, and that's, that's how, I, how I ended up in, in, in the service. Were you always a sport, a sportive child? Were you, were you, or? <laughs> so, no, no, I didn't play any sports. I didn't have the confidence. You know, I, I didn't understand uh, how to do any of those things. Yeah. My, my mom and dad are, are more intellectually driven. So I was a bookworm. Huh. Um, you know, I was, I was, I was somebody who uh, loved to have insightful and deep conversations with my friends. I was a little quirky kid, uh, you know, and you know, I, I, I did flag corps one, one year in high school. And I think that was really instrumental for me in, in learning how to overcome adversity. It was very hard for me from the choreography. And I just didn't pick up the, the counts as fast as I felt like some of the other kids did. But I, I just, I worked my way through it and, and was able to perform. And I think that was my first taste of, okay, if something's hard, uh, you, you can still get through it. And because up until then, I, I didn't pay attention in school. Um, I, I cared more about hanging out with my friends and I didn't get good grades at all. I barely graduated. Um, and I, I was in theater. I, I did like theater a lot. I was in the backstage crew though. I wasn't even an actor or doing anything that was a little bit more prominent. Uh, but I, I enjoyed that. I love, I've always loved story. I've always loved movies and books and and film, and so uh, I was drawn to theater for the same reason. Um, and so I, I had a little bit of experience with that, but no, no, the military was just this this option that came along, and like I said, had no idea that 25 years later I'd still be going. Didn't see it coming. <laughs> but I can see the temptation. I can see the the first for direction and for structure and for a means to get out of the rut and the uncertainty that you found yourself in the Midwest. So I can see the temptation is, and obviously you're still there 25 years, that's quarter of a century. Right. Uh, congratulations on that service for crying out loud. And, and you're still uh, climbing up the career ladder as you do. And nowadays you're proud of it, but there must've been so many moments where there must've been doubt because there was, there was not oh, this, oh, this yeah. born in conviction, this, this kind of, yes, no. I am fifth generation Marine kind of thing. No, no. And, and I've always been a little bit different. I, I, you know, I was always kind of an outsider growing up and I never uh, seemed to fit in with anyone. Like there was never like a group of kids that just thought, oh, Teresa, she's, she's so cool. No, that was never me. I was always really good at having intimate friends. Uh -huh. and friends that I would get really close to. So I would always have like one best friend, a, a companion. Um, and it, it would kind of bounce around from, from girl to girl. Um, but, I, you know, I, 
I just felt like when I joined the Navy, there started to be ways that I could move up. And I saw that there were clear expectations. Like if you do this and you show your value here, you will be rewarded and you will be, you will get advanced. And I, and I saw it as a fair playing field, quite honestly. Um, and, and I thought, wow, this, this, this is very straightforward. I do this, I advance. Yes, I got to deal with these idiots sometimes <laughs> and, you know, people that I don't get along with, but I had come from, um, you know, a little bit of a dysfunction growing up. So I, I understood how to operate in chaos. And so there were, there were times that were incredibly difficult and I just kind of fared my way through it because I was like, well, I can take a raise exam and I, I can advance to the next rank. Um, I can get these qualifications. Why can't I? Um, I, I just had that attitude, like almost like you're not going to tell me I can't do something, you know? And so that was sort of what, and that's a bad, that's sort of your insecurity coming up too. Like you have to prove yourself, but it, it was also something that propelled me forward. Oh, of course. On the contrary, that's a very powerful thing because when you come from a dysfunctional background and you're you're rolling with the punches, hopefully not literally, um, mm -hmm. then you still you I mean, I was insecure as hell. And then suddenly I was I was the, the bullied little child, and then I was sort of the nerdy, weird child when I was sort of in the middle of school, and then suddenly one day I actually, I got, I figured out I'm actually, I'm thirsty for knowledge. And it, it came by accident because I was mediocre at best at school. And then uh, my dad said, look, come on, let's, you can do better. I tell you what, I give you five Deutschmark uh, if you are best in your class for a test. And I give you two Deutschmarks if you're second best and nothing thereafter. Well, for a short period of time, turns out that I was greedy um, because yeah, there was there was a. I said, "Look, you owe me hundred dollars," and he said, "Damn, I didn't think you would do that," <laughs> and he didn't have the money, so that's good. I never got that hundred dollars, but what I did get was that first for knowledge, and suddenly I was no longer the nerdy kid. I was the nerdy kid who was beating the teacher uh, in their games. I knew more than the teacher, and instead of making me a target it actually made me the hero in the in the in the class so suddenly i had the first validation as yeah. from that coming from a very insecure kind of background to wow that's me and i guess that was what you have achieved there you were saying wow i can do that and that is like intoxicating that is so like it a is. oh it's drug all in of itself success is also an addiction isn't it because it really is because then once you get that feeling and that high, uh, when you pass, you know, advance to the next rank, you're like, Oh, I want more. Uh, and um, I've had, to, I've had to wrestle with that too. Um, uh, you know, as I've gotten older of, of what, what is it now that I define as, as being successful versus what it used to mean to me. And I'm sure we all kind of, I think a lot of people, when they approach middle age, they, they get to that point where it's like the things that I, I valued as, as being successful or maybe not the same things that I value today but yes you're right it was kind of that thing that it was definitely one of my addictions was was achieving rank and qualifications I could be the most qualified person in my work center and I could go and, and, and operate any piece of machinery and system and I was the most valuable go-to person uh, for everything that anybody needed fixed on the aircraft and so I, I really relished in, in being that person 
um, and, and showing my value that way. And so it can, it can also become very intoxicating. I agree. <laughs> and you're setting yourself standards that are very hard to achieve because <laughs> to be the best of the best, you have to be the best of the best constantly. Not just mm -hmm. when you're having a good day, but also when you're having a, a bad day. How, right. how did you deal with bad days? Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of times I would just obsess. I would just constantly overthink and overthink and, and just stew on, on a lot of, most of my, my bad days always revolved around somebody I was having an issue with. Um, whether that be a friend, some sort of drama that was going on with a friend, or, or a lot of times it was drama with coworkers or drama with a boss. And I would just obsess and obsess. And I would almost like, I, I would look at it as like this manipulation game where who, who was going to win? And there'd be this like power struggle in my mind of, of how I was going to get one over this person. And those were all very unhealthy, <laughs> addictive behaviors and habits. And, um, it was incredibly difficult at certain times to deal with because I was still being bullied sometimes too. And I didn't yet understand how to stand up to people. And so I would use passive aggressive behaviors as a way to respond to people who were bullying me instead of confronting them, instead of understanding that, Hey, guess what? Not everyone's going to like you, Teresa. It's okay. It's okay to have people that just don't, you know, that your message doesn't resonate with. And I just couldn't accept that. Like I couldn't accept not being liked. And, and now it's so much easier. I still don't like it. And I still find myself a little bit struggling with it. But as long as that person doesn't have power over me, I don't have power over them. But it, it is difficult. It is still something to this day that that I have to really keep myself in check upon is is whether or not um, I'm, I'm obsessing too much over being being liked. And it, it really does go back to those days of being bullied and, and those days of not being cool, not fitting in and wanting to fit in. But then like you say, it's also a superpower because it's the way that I'm able to kind of break the mold and do things other people don't do and sort of be my own trailblazer and my own little pathfinder, finding my way, having a podcast, you know, no public affairs officers have their own podcast and talk about the kinds of stuff I talk about. Um, and so <laughs> it, it's, it, it's a blessing and a curse at the oh, same time. Oh, please. But also give yourself some credit there. Uh, you're fighting and powerful foe there because you're fighting 50,000 years of evolution. Because remember when men were real men and women real women with bare skins over their shoulders, they lived in small tribes, 20 people, maybe maximum 200, but this was a very close knit community. Now, if you were pulling your weight there and everything is all right, cool. If you're not pulling your weight or you piss people off, um, then you get thrown out of the tribe, which was a certain death sentence. So mm -hmm. over those 50,000 years, we have had deeply ingrained into the very, very deep recesses of our brain that you must comply, that you must fit in, that it is really good mm -hmm. to be loved and to be part of a, of a group of people. So that is hardwired in us that desire. And therefore, it can be too powerful a thing, because that makes us the people pleasers. That makes us the, the you're constantly there, you're constantly there for everyone. Uh, you don't put yourself first. No, 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 everyone else comes first. And then you're so naked that you're just constantly go, 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 crash. Go, 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 go. 
fresh. That was me for a very long time. And maybe it's still today a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> bloody it's a hard habit to break and, and like i say to people all the time you know I'm, I, I think we're all we're all works in progress and we're all hopefully you know evolving and becoming better but yeah. I, I think that some of those ways in in, in which i was uh, that have been ingrained into me i still have to have to wrestle with i just handle them um, a lot better these days and they don't they don't bother me nearly as much as they used to <laughs> because i'm so much more in love with who i am and so because of that, I, you know, it, it's like, it's more like an annoying fly now when stuff like that happens than, than something that really like terribly makes my day uh, go wrong. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's how I see it these days that that's changed. Having said that, you don't come to the point where you and I are right now without having gone through some dark periods. So here you were, the young woman who is finding her feet, who is proving herself, who is climbing for the ranks. Um, when did you start trying to escape the reality? When did you start having problems dealing with the life that you had chosen? So I think the, the hardest part for me was the fact that um, I couldn't find um, a healthy partner. So, you know, I had this very unhealthy attraction to people who could not commit to me. And it didn't really change until I was in my late thirties. And so I, I ended up even marrying somebody that wasn't that type, but that I didn't, uh, I wasn't compatible with because he just didn't have the same goals that I did. We just weren't going down the same road, but he was nice to me. And I was so used to people not being nice to me. And I almost like got a high off of it. Like if somebody was, I was, I was, I was the, you know, the, the classic dysfunctional woman that likes the bad guys or likes the guy that can't commit and thinks that she's going to be the one who, who changes him. And, and, and I, and I thought like, I knew there was something wrong with me. I, I knew, I was like, why am I, I'm physically attracted to these people. I'm drawn to them. And it's, it's because they have a lot of the same unhealthy and toxic behaviors that I was displaying. And I didn't understand that that's what I, why I was being drawn to people like that. I even had friends who were like that as well. And I think that that's when it also, it, it, it started early on. I mean, even when I was a teenager, I was, I was always hanging out with the, the, the rebels and the partiers and the kids that, you know, could, would break the rules and, and just be crazy when we would go out and drink together and drinking was glamorous to me. So I think that alcohol plays such a part in choosing the, the men that I did because I was always attracted to the dude that the alpha male, the life of the party, the guy that all the other dudes wanted to be like, but that guy's usually a real asshole. And I just couldn't get enough of those kind of people. Those were the ones I wanted in my life. And I didn't understand that that's not a real man. I, I didn't, it, it didn't even equate to me because in my mind I had, I had socialized myself over years and years of conditioning that that mode of person was attractive. And so that didn't really even change. Even throughout my marriage, I was with this nice guy. He, you know, treated me well. He had some manipulative behaviors, but he wasn't a jerk like, like what I liked. 
And I think that ultimately led to my undoing because I eventually just wanted to gravitate towards those unhealthy people. And so to change that mindset to this day, it's like, I, I don't know how I did it. In my late thirties, I, I finally met somebody that wasn't that way and, but was strong and still his own person and doesn't, you know, follow the quote unquote society rules. He's just a, a great person who is his own person. But that, that's really what it was, is that I just, this whole time I was in the service, I was alone for the most part. I was on, I felt very alone and on my own and it would always be my undoing, especially when I was around groups. I would just drink to feel okay and to feel like I could be myself because the anxiety would just start to boil up and I'd start to feel so nervous around all these people and oh, they don't like me. And so I would just drink, I would just drink myself into a stupor and then I would be fun and I'd be having a good time and everyone would love me and I was alive at the party. Mm. And so that was what I equated having friends and intimacy with was when I was drunk. And that's, that's how it started. Mm. And it didn't stop until um, I stopped looking at alcohol as a cool, glamorous thing. And instead I saw it as a crutch to relieve anxiety. And that's what, when I saw it as a crutch to relieve my social awkwardness and my anxiety, everything changed because I was no longer a victim to this drug anymore. It was instead just something I enjoyed having, but I didn't need to have it in order to fit in because I had to know that it doesn't matter if I, I don't fit in in this group. I, I still need to be myself. And so that's what changed for me. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, I must say, the same change happened for me, but it took me much, much longer than it appears to have happened to you. The insight there seems to be quite profound, clear, and you switched. For me, it took probably years to come off that rat race, hamster wheel of uh, trying to be the best, 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 crashing, considering myself constantly an imposter and a failure and drowning my sorrows as part of that right. towards that person who is now saying, yeah, okay, that's me, what's and all, and I love myself and I really mean Absolutely. it. Um, but that took years, that took years. So, and I mean it, probably five years, six years that I really can now say, yeah, okay, this is me. Um, was it really such a quick process for you or oh, no? No, no? No, it wasn't because I, you know, I was going through a lot of self-help um, for years. I, you know, and I would go to church and that would help a little bit because I'd be around better people through yeah. church. Um, but I never broke that unhealthy attraction towards uh what we, it's called like the avoidant. Um, if you like, I've done a lot of studying on attachment disorder and I really believe that attachment theory is such a powerful way to understand what happens to people um, when they're living in their dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And so there's the avoidant attachment disorder and then there's me, which is, I forget what the other end of the screen, but the people that are attracted to the avoidance the needy kind of people mm. that, that was me. And, um, I, once I understood that, that was what really changed the game for me because at first I thought, man, it's because I've got attention deficit disorder or I've got bipolar. And, and I, and I thought I had all these other things when really I had an attachment injury. Um, I, I I'm adopted. 
Um, and growing up, you know, my mom and dad, they did their best, but I had a lot of, you know, conflict with my mom and I, we, we had a lot of, uh, you know, just, just sometimes did not have the best relationship and we have a much better one today, which I'm very grateful for. But I think a lot of that period in my life just really made me feel traumatized and made me feel alone and started my victim mentality where I thought I'm just not good. Uh, there's something wrong with me. And so you think there's something wrong with you. And so you build a wall around yourself and you're like, screw these people, fuck that. I'm just going to get what I need to get out of life. And so you live your life that way. Like, I'm just going to see how I can manipulate and play power games and do all this other stupid stuff because I don't think anyone's going to love me if they know who I really am on the inside. And, and that was, and so it was definitely a lot of fits and starts, Stephen. It wasn't one day I woke up and said, oh, I'm different. It was really examining what was going on with this attachment injury. And then how do I put myself in, in, in social situations where I'm not around other people who have attachment injuries? Because if I'm just only around other people with attachment injuries, I'm never going to grow because I'm going to be around a bunch of other people that are victim blaming and, and, call, and you know, playing victim and thinking all oh, the world is bad. I did have this mean world syndrome going on where everybody was lucky in life and they are talented and gifted and I'm not, I'm not good at anything, poor me. And so I had to be around people that don't live like that and don't act that way. And I had to say, what is it that they have that I don't? Some of these people had traumatic childhoods. I would go to anonymous groups meetings and I'd be around these leaders and I'd be like these guys running the meetings and I, and they, they were raped as children. They, they were molested. They had all this horrible things happen and they're not the way I am <laughs> and they're married and they've got healthy relationships now. How did they do it? And that's when it really started to kick in for me. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and it is, uh, a series of many little events of mm -hmm. many little little yes things that have occurred that you know one evening you get one little ha huh, moment mm -hmm. and then then a week later you get ha huh. and it's it's amazing it is basically like you're having a, a, a granite block and you try to do a, a statue it's not mm -hmm. just one hammer bang there's the statue oh. no it takes you hours and days and weeks and it's, it's exactly touche touche um really? and it's it's powerful i mean i love i love to hear you you being so open about that because that is so important what is intriguing for me though is that you are here on this this journey of self-discovery and a beautiful journey it is you are you're saying that you've tried to, to escape reality with your alcohol and yet at the same token you were actually in the navy you were actually uh, going through the ranks there is this kind of, of of a strange thing i mean you i assume you were land-based you were not deployed on on ships uh, for most yeah it would depend and and when i would abuse the alcohol it would be when i pull into a port i would just get stupid right. drunk Right. And I have to have a friend, you know, take care of me mm. that, that, you know, shouldn't have had to do that. And right. then it would happen, like I said, and this is where like the fits and starts would happen because I would, I would be okay for a while. Mm. And then I would just get into a situation where 
I felt awkward and uncomfortable and not, not feeling loved and feeling accepted. And so then I would just drink again to, to get that feeling of, of love again, because I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to be liked. And so I felt like if I was drunk, people would like me. Um, so it went on for, for years off and on, there would be periods, like even when I was in my marriage, you know, and I was happy with my ex-husband, we would go months sometimes and be, and be very happy. And it wouldn't really fester to the point where I had to address it because I was, I was constantly being distracted by my, just the day-to-day life, but it never really left my mind that this was this glamorous thing that I could do to escape reality and be accepted. And so because I associated drinking with being loved and with being accepted, um, I continued to do it uh, off and on. And so I could still achieve things and I could still move through the ranks, but it, but then there was in 2014, and and I'll speak about this very openly. I, I got a DUI. I, I, I rammed a car ahead in front of me and uh, no damage to either car, but the guy flipped out about whatever. He was an Uber driver and they insisted they call the police and I, and I, and I had to spend a night in jail and I almost lost my career as a lieutenant. So when that happened, you think like, oh no, she'll never drink again. No, I just stopped drinking and driving. Um, and I started going to anonymous meetings and that helped tremendously. Like I said, that gave me a lot of perspective about like, wait a minute, Teresa, you were not uh, um, sexually molested. You were not raped. These people have had traumas that are just way worse. They've been homeless. They've been heroin heroin addicts, you name it. They've just had all this horrible things happen and they're still moving on. And that that gave me a lot of pause. Um, But I still had very unhealthy relationship dating behaviors. And so uh, that didn't really end until I met my husband. I met my husband in my late thirties and I'm 44 now. So I've really only been at this very, very wonderful place in my life and so happy um, since I've met him, but I don't abuse alcohol and I see success a lot differently. So I think those things have made it a lot better for me, but I, I do owe a lot of my, my gratitude towards, you know, the way I am by, by seeing somebody like my husband who just really is such a, a wonderful shining example of kindness and strength all, all wrapped into one, you know, and uh, he inspires me a lot. Which is so beautiful that you, that you found that person and that is, that is your saving grace. What strikes me a little bit is about what you don't talk about. Um, it's what you don't talk about is the 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 role of alcohol in the Navy and the role of any support system within the Navy um, that might have helped you to deal with your emotions or might have helped you to deal with your addiction. Was there at that time an awareness within the Navy? Were there programs there that you could have um, could have sought help through, like an employee uh, um, assistance employee assistance program EAP is there something like that in the Navy there are and and um I I have sought counseling off and on the Navy is actually very good about those things the problem was is that I had that psychotic I had a psychotic disorder when I was um 19 and I was hospital 20 and I was hospitalized I was sent home from a duty station in Iceland and they were going to process me out of the Navy and I fought a med board to stay in the military Uh. and so because of that 
year of fighting psychologists who wanted to kick me out, I was very untrusting of sure. mental health. Sure. And so I, I did use this thing called military one source. That was the only thing I would use because you can go 12 sessions and it doesn't get in your medical record. Mm. But I was terrified of, of going back to mental health because every time I wanted to move on in my career, mm. I had to go back and revisit this incident. And I had to talk about how I had a brief psychotic episode, not otherwise specified. And I had to revisit what led to that incident mm. and ways in which I was doing amazing now in order to keep going in the military. But it, it really caught up with me with the drinking. And I had an incident when I was in uh, Malabar, which is an, another ship that I was on. Uh, I was on an exercise, Exercise Malabar in India, where uh, I woke up after a blackout, still in my whites, puke, blah, 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 terrified of what I said or did that evening. Turns out I, I acted fine and they, the guys got me home, uh, but it, it scared the shit out of me. And at that point I was a Lieutenant commander, same rank I am now. It was in 2018 and that's when I sought help and I broke down crying mm. to a chief on the ship. We were deployed and I, I just said, I can't control this anymore. I, I can't mm. get wasted at a, at an, a reception as a, as a public affairs officer and not know what I said or did. And it just, it scared the shit out of me, Stephen, because I was terrified that someone saw me and I, and I was having a lot of drama in my work center. And I thought someone just could come back to haunt me somehow. And so I made the choice to seek help through the drug and alcohol program. It's called DAPA or it's, it's the, we sure, I forget what they, they call it through the Navy, but, but yes, to answer your question, they do an amazing job. And, and, and I was shocked that there would have been this kind of treatment in the beginning because addiction counselors are, are a lot different than any other counselor I think you'll go to because they hold addicts accountable. And that's what I really needed. And I'll never forget when the counselor after that deployment, because they couldn't send me while I was on deployment, but I just said, I won't drink this rest of the deployment, but I want to go to treatment. They sent me to a two week, uh, it, it was not residential, but you just went all day. Yeah. And I really developed a really great rapport with the, with one of the counselors and he got me in a room with their senior counselor. And I was just going on and on about all these problems I was having with my, one of my coworkers and how she was so wrong and who does she think she is and blah, 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 you know? And I was just consumed with that situation, like obsessed about it. And the counselor was like, do you think maybe she's triggering something with you? A dynamic that you've had in your past? And that was a game changer for me because I didn't even understand what triggers were or, or any of that. And, and, and they were like, well, sounds like you're kind of obsessing about the situation and you're being a little bit of a victim. You're playing, you're playing the victim card, Teresa. And it was all I needed to hear. And she, they were absolutely right. I mean, I just kind of sat there dumbfounded and I didn't know what to say. And it was the best thing they could have said to me. <laughs> it really was and and honestly yeah. i wish i had thought treatment for alcohol abuse so much sooner in my career that's it that was in week two in my re rehab uh i um i was full of resentment and anger and they, mm -hmm. my counselor asked me to write a letter to a certain organization that mm -hmm. i held uh responsible for much of my my bullying and suffering 
And so I went to town that night, wrote letters <laughs> and reams of paper, wrote it, wrote it, wrote it. And then they came there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk what oh, they did to me. Let's talk what they did. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. I read a book out of that. <laughs> and she sort of looked at it, flipped through it, and then folded it aside and put it, put it to the side and sort of said, okay, let's talk about you now. And I said, but, 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 no, 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 let's, let's, let's. <laughs> and I was angry about this poor, poor counselor. I was absolutely angry. Oh, how dare she treat me like that? So I then reflected on her and transferred on her that my anger. And it was, and it took me a few days to actually get, get my shit together and actually realize, huh, there's maybe more to that, as you said. But it is just, oh my God. This anger, this can be so, oh, self-destructive. So it really can't. It eats you up. Oh my God, it eats you alive. And it's and I and I do think there's probably some sort of like you say evolution. There's some sort of a self-protection mechanism in place that we're fighting when we're having a conflict where we just want to push the blame on someone else. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it can be difficult because you have to think about what's my side of the street versus what's their side uh, of the street. Yeah. But there are, I mean, that's life. You, you're going to have to work with people that you don't all, that don't always love you. And you have to learn that's resilience. You have to learn how to work with those people. <laughs> it's part of life. And, um, it, all you can do is, and I think is be respectful. You be kind, you be professional. If there's someone you're working with that you don't see eye to eye with, try to politely limit your interactions with that person in, in a way that is still respectful and is still kind and is still giving them the grace that you want extended upon yourself. And, and that's, that's to me, all the best that I think we can do in those situations. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I struggled a lot in those areas and, and it took, like you say, it, it's certainly, it's a growing and healing. I, I think that's the part that a lot of people have struggles with too, is that when they get into counseling or they get into therapy, they just want to be healed immediately. And, and sometimes they don't understand that this might take years of, of fits and starts. Um, and you got to be patient with yourself and, and understand that you're going to fall and you're going to probably slip up a few times before you get better. So true. 80% relapse rate in the first year, that is a given. You can expect that, that you stumble and fall. So I love the way you put that there. And it's so true. And it, over my shoulder there, uh, this one there, that's the old version of uh, Steps to Sobriety. Uh, it's taken off the market now because the new version is coming out in a month or two. But there's a whole chapter in there dealing with toxic uh, people. and But also there's a chapter in there about taking criticism and constructive mm -hmm. criticism. Right. And it is it is such a hard thing when you're living in this victim mentality where you blame everything and everyone around you without actually taking ownership. And mm -hmm. that is the hard thing. That is, I was that typical victim there. I made myself that victim. I think one of the best books to read on, on a different approach would be Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, US Navy SEAL. And I love his his attitude that everything is his problem, but not in the sense of, oh, I need to beat myself up, but rather taking the approach that if someone in a rank below you stuffs up, then you either haven't given the, the person the tools or the knowledge or the skills to do their job. 
And if someone above you in the rank uh, fucks up, then you might have not provided that person with the data that he needed to make a more informed decision, etc. So it was that kind of active taking ownership and trying to improve your communication and developing that awareness of what is going on in the bigger scheme of things, rather than Oh, he looked at me bad. He, mm-hmm. he, he. You know, it's, and it gets this emotional, personal kind of thing oh, yeah. without you actually listening to what was said, because you know sometimes people are right. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Well, was what's hard is sometimes your worst critics that may not really have your best interest at heart can say the most truest things about your personality. And so it's like, you have to know, and, and that's that's a really hard skill. And I work on it every day, whereas somebody I, I'm, I may not see eye to eye on yeah. and who I may not care for yeah. actually has very valid criticism <laughs> and feedback about the way I am and the yep. way I act. And it's like, well, I have to compartmentalize that and go, okay, I don't like this about this person, hmm. but I, agree with what they're giving me about this situation because Absolutely. i do do that i am selfish <laughs> in this way or i you know w- whatever the case is oh. and that takes like you say radical ownership <laughs> um but I, I find it empowering uh, i think i wish more people would yep. own yep. their shit because when you own things you're in control i yep. think because you're going okay i do do that mm. and yes that is something I do need to work on. And I think that that puts the ownership of the issue onto you. And then you have the ability to do something about it instead of just saying, woe is me, the world sucks, life is horrible. Well, life's not fair for everyone. And I think that's what helps me too, is like, there is nobody that gets through life unscathed. Everyone has trauma. Everyone has shit they're dealing with, right? Like. I have this arm thing that's not even that bad right now, but it's bad in my mind. In, in, but it's nothing compared to I'm sure other people are dealing with. And so that that, that puts it in perspective for me. Uh, yeah. if- yes and no, yes and no. This is not a pissing contest for crying out loud. It is, mm-hmm. it is. oh, but his friend was ripped to shreds in front of him. Now he has got the right to have PTSD. Uh, if right. you were in a road traffic accident and you are quite traumatized by that well you know you might have just a shoulder injury but for you that is trauma so it's no contest it is whatever it is for you you might have to to deal with what life has served you here and there in your case a shoulder injury there you go it is it is scary and and uh, perfectionists like us we automatically think oh my god oh my god we catastrophize my life is end now. I'm. I'm. Oh my God. I'm. I'm getting. I'm turning old. I. I will not be yeah. able to do the next uh, physical fitness test. Therefore, will right. I make it, Commander? Or will I? You know, will I be able to ascend for the ranks? Or is that shoulder right. injury now the end of it? You know, it's right. all those fears and those. Yeah. All oh. Those thoughts come- like, oh gosh, am I going to get the cool jobs at work now? Am I going to just sit around in the office and do admin work? Oh exactly, no. Exactly. Exactly. Why can't I go to Korea in August or wherever <laughs> I might go? You know, it's just these, these kinds of things that, that go through my mind when I'm like, well, really, I should just treat my darn shoulder and, and stop <laughs> worrying about what, what the heck happens. Oh, beautiful. But I, we, oh. we obsess. And I think that's part of being an addict is, mm. is obsessive. 
yeah. is that we, you know, we take something and we just ruminate about it in our mind over and over and over again. <laughs> and then, but, but the thing that I try not to do and I, and I work on is, is what I try not to do is unload that on the other people yeah. because it, just because it's in my mind, number mm. one, I have control of my mind. <laughs> I can stop thinking about this thing yeah. and, and obsessing over it. And the other thing I can do is I, it is not other people's burden to take on. Um, and you don't want to be that kind of person that's just constantly unloading on other people. Oh, sure, sure. You know. How, how has your own leadership changed with your personal growth? Has that been reflected on the way you communicate with the people around you in the Navy? And how did they take that? Well, um, I'll go back to that situation that occurred on, on that ship where uh, I sought the treatment for alcohol abuse. I was having, like I was saying, a lot of issues, um, not only with my, my I, that person that, that I mentioned, but a couple other people as well. And once it was pointed out to me how bad things had gotten and that I, I was the problem in some of the cases, I started changing the way I led tr tremendously. Um, I, I would not let things get emotional. I stopped being passive aggressive. I worked very hard to really take ownership of the things that I was doing and the ways in which I was contributing to making that situation toxic. And I saw an incredible difference, to be honest with you. So much so that people from my department said, I don't know what happened. I don't know what's going on, but we're so much happier now. And I think it's because that they saw that I wasn't every day constantly fighting with one particular person. And, yeah. and I, I think that, you know, as the senior person, it was my responsibility to take the high road mm -hmm. and to figure out a way to best serve not only this person, but everybody in my department who, who saw what was going on. And unfortunately, like I said, I was, I was desensitized to a, to a toxic work, work environment. So it was just nothing new to me to, to be able to function this way. But it was when other people around me saw how bad it was getting and, and, and brought it to my attention. Well, that was when I, I, I took ownership of it and said, okay, I need to get treated for my alcohol issue and I need to change the way that I lead mm. and one of the other things that it taught me was to get in front of situations so if I'm having um, a conflict with someone um, not only do I have to address it with that person and try to come to a common mm. understanding with that person that things are not so great but we'll do the best we can mm. um, if I sense that I might be getting undermined or that they're questioning what I'm doing and it's getting to other people. I, I've got to make sure that the people above me are not blindsided by what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so that was also another mistake that I made in the situation is I blindsided uh, my upper leadership because I didn't trust uh, them to, to take care of it. Mm -hmm. I was always like, well, I, I can take care of this. I got it. And, mm -hmm. and so That I also learned from this situation and I lead a lot differently now. So even at the command I went to after this one, um, I had a situation where I felt like a certain, me and a certain person, it could have gotten contentious. And it never did because I communicated with him every step of the way what I was doing 
to try to fix this issue. And I was communicating with all my leadership about what I was doing to fix this issue because I had learned from that prior situation that it doesn't matter if you don't trust the people or not. You just have to communicate what it is you're doing to help solve the problem. And if they don't like the way you're doing it, they'll, they'll tell you, they'll say, no, no, Teresa, have you thought about it like this? Have you done it? Like, have you thought about like that? And I never even came close to those kinds of issues ever again, because I I had learned how to, how to get in front of things and also not to let myself get into a place where I'm being passive aggressive. And I know that I have a tendency to do that because I don't like confrontation. And so passive aggressiveness is a way for people like me who don't like confrontation. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to get a little in there, but it's, it's, it's very toxic and people see right through it. So you, you just can't do it. Brilliant. Has that changed so that people are looking forward to be part of your team? Um, did you, is that something that by leading by example, that other people have taken on maybe a more proactive role as well? Oh yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I, I think that the people that I've had work, I haven't had led a large team like that since, but I have had people come and, and work for me and, and be on my team. And I, I think that the way I try to lead now is well, 100% by example, mm. you know, I, I don't, my people never stay in the office uh, longer uh, than I'm there. Mm. So if it's an early day for me, it's an even earlier day for them. Mm. Um, and I, I, to be quite frank with you, I just haven't had any issue with anyone who's worked for me that has been the, the, like that since um, I have had issues where, either a, a coworker or somebody on the same level, uh, I could sense that things could have gotten to a place where they could have been contentious. And so I knew how to, like I was saying, I knew how to get in front of that. But um, as far as the, the people that I have around me now, I mean, I, I couldn't be more thankful. I, I have an amazing work environment with the people I work with today. And, and I don't have any of those issues. Now, granted, I don't have as stressful of a job. And so that, that plays a role as well. Um, so my, my next assignment after this one, uh, depending on what I choose, could be another job, like a, an ass kicker job, like the one I had, uh, where it will put me in those situations where I will probably get challenged like that again, uh, depending on the people. You know, it all depends on, on the team that you get. We don't choose our teams in the military. Uh, they, you know, those are chosen for us. And so... It's just going to depend on, on where I go next and what happens next. But I can tell you, my relationships are so much better. And, and you know, we're not going to stop in life having conflicts with people. That's, that's always going to be there. I think I handle it a lot better, though, now because of that whole situation. I needed to learn that lesson. And I'm glad I did. Don't forget, 10% of people have got a personality disorder. Uh, 1% of the people that you meet are bona fide psychopaths sociopaths Mm -hmm. these people will not go away just because you want to lead different or make yourself a different person these will still be there they will thrive on chaos they will uh, instigate chaos uh, because that's how they take that's where they feel best Uh, they are pieces of shit basically Um, but yeah they will be there 
but it's I love the way how you said earlier how you're dealing with that by being actually transparent and by not becoming the magnet of their hate or their chaos but rather by deflecting by doing whatever you can but accepting that you can't be the superwoman that yep. fixes everything but rather communicating up the rank and say okay guys this is what we're doing here this is what's happening and I think that is the key thing. Therefore, you're deflecting. Therefore, you are actually uh, taking the heat away from directly onto you. And that's so powerful what you're doing there. So the communication is, is the, the key to this conflict resolution, to the de-escalation that you're, that you're doing there. And that is God. I, I just don't, I don't, um, I, I don't give it power, you know? Uh, um, and I think that's, that's the best thing that you can do is when, you're in that situation you you may know or you may sense that somebody isn't uh healthy like you say has a little bit of that dysfunction going on and what i try to do now is i just i celebrate the parts of the, their personalities that are not like that i can sense that that there's those sides to those kinds of people and i'm very sensitive to it i think because i've been around it a lot um but I, when I sense it, I, I just know, okay, maybe that's somebody that I'm not going to share, you know, all my secrets with, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to invest a lot of my emotional uh, time with, it'll be more somebody that I have a very polite and respectful relationship with, but who I may not share a lot of myself with, because it won't be welcomed. They, they don't, for some reason, they don't care for me. And, and that's okay. And so that that's, that's the way that, that I've found to, to deal with that is that, you know, you can't, yeah, like you say, there are some people in this world who, who haven't dealt or addressed their traumas mm. and it comes through in the way they treat others and the things that they say to people sometimes. And when I see that, that's a red flag to me to say, okay, that's probably somebody I'm going to limit my interactions mm. with and my time with. Um, I'll still have to work with that person or I'll still have to coordinate things with that person, but I'm probably not going to joke around with them or share all my stories with them. You know, they're just going to be somebody that I have a little bit of a boundary with. And I think that's what's healthy of life is that you identify those people that are not safe or in that you may not want to share all of your story with. And that's okay. Did you ever meet someone who you recognized your younger self in? I, the yes. reason I'm asking that is the last the last week or two, I must have met, I certainly have met two patients where I looked at them and I thought, oh, I know you so well. It, I could just read them like a book and it was just the same bullshit that I was spouting, the same behavior, the same uh, trying to hide yet trying to ask for help in a weird way. Um, did that happen to you? Yes, I, I certainly had people on my team and friends that I've come across who, who, who definitely do some of the same things that I used to do. Um, and it's, it's very, it, it is very, and they'll hide it by, oh, I don't want a relationship or, or they'll say things like that. And it's like stuff that I used to say, you know, when I was hurting and, 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 and I have a lot of compassion for them. Um, oh, I have a good example. I was on a, clubhouse room and I was talking about um it was about narcissists and about sort of how do you avoid the online vitriol and I say you don't respond I say when someone says something crazy 
you just don't respond to it. And people just, there were people in the group that just got really defensive about that. And, and, and I, and I get it because I used to get riled up by those things too. (laughs) And so that, you know, I have a lot of, I love a lot of compassion when I see somebody being my younger self and doing some of the things I used to do it usually causes me to feel very empathetic towards them. And, mm. and, and I try not to minimize it or judge it because I know that in their mind, it, they do feel they have to get, you know, and, and a lot of people think like, Oh, I can't just turn it off like a switch. Like you can Teresa. And, and they don't understand my story or mm. understand that this isn't something I, I, I just happened to come across overnight and decide not to, not to give give a fuck. Uh, no, I, this was something that took me years and years of stop and start, stop and start, stop and start until I got to a place where I decided that it just, I couldn't live like that anymore. And again, I'm also around somebody every day now in my life who shows me what right looks like. And so I get a lot of inspiration just from watching him. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Teresa. Wow you have gone for such a journey and you keep going on this journey and your path is just so it's like mine convoluted and yeah. you're you're you've just come to that corner and think wow see i've come so far and then you come around and you think wow there's more to go there's more to learn and there's more yay <laughs> so it is it is exciting i just i wouldn't have it any other way uh has it been traumatic oh hell yes hell yes um <laughs> it's it's wonderful it is do you get any any not feedback what do i want to say any blowback from you being so outspoken now certainly from from the navy do mm-hmm. what do they think about it it depends i mean i i'm very good about making sure that ethically and by the regs and, and all those things I, i'm doing this the correct way but i've been active on social media ever since facebook was created and i've been active on social media in terms of i used to do protests in front of pet stores to stop puppy mills um i have had a blog since 2014 so nothing i do on social media is new right so um there have just been people that I can tell, especially within my own professional community, just by the way they treat me. Like mm. when I see them at conferences and they'll barely talk to me or whatever, or I'll kind of, you know, I'll just be friendly and I can tell that their friendliness is not reciprocated. <laughs> but I know, like, you know, I'm probably not one of one of the golden kids or the cool kids in the, in the room or whatever um, to, to some people. But then, you know what, Stephen, on the flip side, I've got people who, in my own community, in public affairs, who say, keep doing what you're doing, Teresa. I love what you're doing. You're inspiring me. You're inspiring other sailors that they too can share their story and they too can be active on social media. Social media is not the enemy. And it's really, to me, and I say this all the time, it's no different than me having a conversation with somebody face to face. I would have the same thing to say to somebody if they sat down and had coffee with me than I would through a computer screen. It's no different. And um, could people take what I say out of context? Could they twist my words around? Yeah, but they're gonna do that in everyday conversation as well. So I see this as an amazing way. Like I would have never met you. You're all the way halfway across the world. 
but through the power of technology, you and I are able to connect. And I think that is a beautiful, amazing thing. And it has inspired me to start my podcast. It's inspired me to be more active on other platforms like LinkedIn and, and Instagram. So I, I don't like the blowback that I get occasionally. It, it, I do sometimes let it get to me, especially if it comes from somebody who I respect because sometimes it comes from people I like. Or, or, or that I respect or who, who's, who have careers that I admire. Mm. Um, and I can just tell, like I said, it's not something that they personally say to me, but I can tell by some of the things that they say publicly about this issue or that they, the way that they've treated, they treat me. Mm. I can tell that maybe it's not welcomed, um, but I think I'm on the right path and yeah. I, I believe in what I'm doing. How many veterans are killing themselves in the United States every day? Okay, this is the only answer, the only question that you need to ask in order to quieten these people. You cannot just turn young men and women into these machines that at times have to take lives, that at times have to go through scenarios that no one in their sane mind can come through and be normal, whatever normal is, again. So no, we need to be quite clear about that. We need to accept that we as human beings are vulnerable. And it doesn't matter if you're a type A personality who is running uh, onto the battlefield or if you are in, in a different, different framework in your head, it doesn't matter. There will be trauma, there will be hard, brutal times that will not be easy for you. That is normal. That is normal in each and every life. The only yeah. way that we can protect ourselves is to create resilience, to create that feeling of understanding towards ourselves, the feeling of love towards ourselves. And by the, in the moment that you start modeling that, that you're going out there and say, yes, here am I, what's and all. No, I'm not proud of what I've done then, but I'm very proud of what I'm doing now. And that makes me a stronger person. So if again, shit happens, I will be able to deal with that in a different way. That is leadership. That is you going out there and being a role model for the young, confused women and men right. who are coming through the services now. I want, I want all people in the military to know that they can share their story Absolutely. and that they can be free to be who they are online, in person, and express themselves hmm. as long as they're not violating any you know military policies they're not Absolutely. speaking out against a, a dod policy in uniform in an official capacity hmm. they are free to have a voice and to express themselves and by expressing ourselves we tell others that we're not alone that there's somebody else out there that's been called bipolar or that's hmm. been in a psychiatric hospital or who struggle with alcohol abuse. They're not the only ones that have gone through these problems. I just had a guy on my podcast who saw just unspeakable, horrific acts of, of battle. And he's a strong Latino male, very macho. And, and he had to overcome so much to, to seek help, not only to seek help, but then to come on a podcast he had never even spoken to media before I met him in El Salvador. So the, the two weeks that I was, you know, or about a month that I was there, he 
spoke to two different media outlets and he got on my podcast. That takes some freaking balls. I'm nerve. Sorry, it's probably offensive, but it took some nerve for him to do that. And I admire him so much for it because we need more people sharing their struggles, sharing their vulnerability and saying, I struggled so that people know like it's okay. It's okay to go get treatment. It's okay to screw up. It's okay to, 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 to fall because it's when we fall, we learn and we grow. <laughs> and we grow know? stronger. And, so, and yeah, you become yeah. better leaders because you're you going through it. And, and is mm-hmm. if you go back to, to the Falklands War where the UK fought Argentine, um, there the, the English went through some very brutal fighting. And some of the soldiers were uh, repatriated by airplane. They were basically bang. 24, 48 hours later, they were back in the UK. Others were sailing home and were basically able for those several weeks on, on the ship to decompress, to talk about their things, their, their experiences, etc. The incidence of PTSD was remarkable in the difference. The guys who flew home, the incidence of PTSD and then harmful behavior was so much higher compared with the other guys that were able to learn to talk about it in a safe environment amongst their peers. That was such a powerful lesson to be learned. Yet, it seems that in many militaries, we are again forgetting these kind of things. You need to be able to talk. You need to be able to decompress and be honest about the emotions that are being stirred up by the experiences that people have. It's all quite nice. Oh, talking about it. Like we, we get a lot of, you know, encouragement for junior enlisted to go and seek treatment, but there are not very many people in my rank mm. who talk about getting help themselves. Mm. And I, I would like to see more of that. I would like to see more of our most senior leaders, our, our flag officers um, talking about a time that they struggled and they sought help. And I don't necessarily always mean that they sought psychiatric help mm. either just that they went to a support group or they, and then what that was like. I mean, I can remember being in my, my bathroom floor, just curled up fetal position, crying for days over a breakup and, and thinking I just had nobody. And it was only when I would go to these anonymous groups and I would sit there and I'd listen to these shares from people that I was like, oh, wow, I'm really not alone in this loneliness thing. There's a lot of other people who feel alone, not just me. And it was wonderful because I was able to make friends through it. I have one friend to this day who has become a cherished friend and I met her in AA. And so I, I, I think that the more leaders who talk about their struggles, the more people will go, oh, okay, this is okay to, 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 to fall. And this is okay to have these struggles. And, and I know that I can find people to talk to too, people that are safe and people that I can trust which is beautiful and you are again you're encouraging people by doing that and you have got your own podcast now tell us a bit about that because that is obviously how people can can share their story and maybe take that first step mm-hmm. of speaking out and speaking up how can they get hold of you what is your your podcast okay so i started a podcast called stories of service and the tagline is ordinary people who do extraordinary work and so I want to showcase the person who coaches their little league team or volunteers at their church or is involved with their local animal shelter. I'm really 
interested in how people give back to their communities or to their work environment if they're involved with professional organizations. Because I think that the way, the best way to get over trauma is to be surrounded by people who are not battling themselves. I, I really do. I mean, all those years that I was in my addiction or I was, you know, battling myself or feeling sorry for myself or obsessing over things. I tended to surround myself with women who had the same traumas going on, or I would go for men that were doing the same destructive behaviors on their end. And it wasn't until I started volunteering with the animal advocacy hmm. people and, and getting involved in, 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 in the animal policy and protection that I really learned about just these wonderful, empathetic people who, who just felt so passionate about the cause. Mm. And it really opened my eyes to like, this is not all that there is to life is, is this drama and this partying and, and all these other things. And so I, 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 and I think that it, I wanted to showcase these people that are just everyday people. You don't have to be, you know, um, Brene Brown, you don't have to have a Ted talk or, or whatever. Yeah. Mm. You, you can just be a person that shows up in your community for your rotary club meetings or, or whatever lions club there's so many organizations out there that you can be involved with and even if you're not doing it there maybe you are in, on a diversity council at work um just people that just show up and, and act as a vessel of service in some way shape or form that's as simple as it is i've done eight episodes um, I love it. It's a creative outlet. It's great for interviewing and I just really enjoy it. So I've had just a great opportunity to, to get involved with, with this beautiful. In that yeah. Beautiful. Guys, look down there into the description of the video uh, or of the podcast. Uh, the links are down there so you can uh, check Teresa out and her show. And it would be rude not to go across and have a little listen and, and see. And whilst, whilst you're thinking about going across, just hit that subscribe button on my channel first. Yes. Uh, it would be silly not to, to subscribe <laughs> and get all the, the cool interviews that we are running here every week because there there is so many wonderful wonderful guests out there and Teresa you're one of them who spent their time and their passion with me here and they they open up about their struggles and how beautiful is that because you guys out there you're not alone you're mm -hmm. you're you know here Teresa and me we're we are yeah. lucky enough to to be to be highly functioning and we're functioning enough in our addiction to not lose our jobs but here we are we are now the new and improved versions and if right. if two numb nuts like us were able mm -hmm. to get that sorted hey there is a chance for you honestly honestly sure. there is life is too short and yes you have gone through a lot of of bad times and you you might be in a really really bad place right now but this is this is not the end. The past no, does not true. equal the future. Hey, no. we have got you have got choices, and the, you have made that choice. You have listened to the interview till now. This is fantastic. You made a huge step there. So now the next step is taking action and actually switch that off and then subscribe and then think uh, about, huh? Okay, how does that apply to me? and make mm -hmm. one little decision. 
one little right. decision of making little things different. Where could that lead you if you do that every day? You make yeah. that one little I mean, decision. Huh? It, it could be joining a running club. It could be, you know, looking within yourself and saying, well, what do I love doing that's social? And how can I join other people that are doing that same thing? How can I give back? How can I find a, a cause in my community that, you know, really speaks to my soul that I can do with other people? And, and, I, and it's really that simple, Stephen. And, and that's just the one actionable thing you can do. So many times it's like, oh, I'm going to hit the gym. And I think that's great. Don't get me wrong. I think working out is is, is wonderful. And, and okay, you're, you're doing this wonderful thing. Or, oh, I'm going to get my master's. Okay, do that. But I really believe that until you change your, your, your peer group and the people you're surrounded with, I don't think you're going to get out of your trauma. Because I think that if you hang around those same people and you have those same habits, you're going to continue, even though you might get the masters, you might get your body in shape, but your mind and the, and it won't, won't, won't become better. So I, I think that's just so key to, to changing. Definition of insanity is to try the same thing again and again and expecting a different outcome. Yes, so yes. please, I'm, I'm the master of that. Please, I did that. Okay, no, 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 no. Teresa, I'm so grateful for your time. This was an amazing interview. I'm absolutely humbled. I'm honored that you were on my show. Uh, thank you so much to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It's always wonderful to dive deep into these issues. I don't get a chance to talk about them very often. So thank you for giving me a safe place to share. And you guys out there, look after yourself, stay strong and make the decision to change your life around one little tiny micro habit at a time, but take action and you can do it. And who knows where that leads you. And who knows one day you're on my show and you're talking about <laughs> your transformation. Who says it can't happen? <laughs> so you guys out there, look after yourself, Teresa and you too. Big hugs. Bye. <laughs> Bye.